Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 106. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so lovely to have your company. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. April's prize is a copy of King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship by Linda Collins and Siobhan Clark. Thank you to the History Press UK for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about the Tudor and Stuart Inns of Court is Dr. Daniel Gosling. Dan has worked at the National Archives since 2018, specialising in the records of the late medieval and early modern central law courts and the early modern legal profession. Dan holds a PhD from the University of Leeds, which he completed in 2016. His thesis examined the use and interpretation of the Statute of Premuneri in the late medieval and early modern periods, drawing principally from common law records held at the National Archives and printed law reports. Before joining the National Archives, Dan worked as Archives Assistant at the Honourable Society of Gray's Inn, working with early modern legal collections relating to legal education. At the National Archives, Dan has contributed to several cataloguing projects, augmenting the catalogue data for several early modern legal series and increasing accessibility for researchers wanting to use these records. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Dan. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks, Nat. And it's been a little while since you were on the show, so maybe we could just begin by you just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, of course. Uh, So I'm Dan Gosling, and I'm a historian specialising in late medieval and early modern English legal history. Uh, I work as the early modern legal records specialist at the UK National Archives, where I'm responsible for their legal collections dating from the 15th to the 18th century. And these include records such as the treason trial of Anne Boleyn, the will of William Shakespeare, and hundreds of thousands of other legal records held there, such as deeds, wills, and legal proceedings. Uh, Before joining National Archives, I completed a PhD looking at the Statute of Primunire, which was crucial in bringing about the downfall of Thomas Wolsey and the English break with Rome. And I worked at the archives of the Honourable Society of Gray's Inn, which is one of the four inns of court. Fantastic. So, Dan, you said that word again that I can never really pronounce. It's, you know, I try and avoid it at all costs and you've said it again. So what was it again? Primunire? <laughs> it was a Primunire and I did promise myself I wouldn't say it today. <laughs> you but, wouldn't um, say it. I, can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> That's okay. Now, the last time you were on here, like you mentioned, we talked to Thomas Woolsey. So that was episode 57 for anyone who'd like to have a listen to that. But today we're going to focus on the Tudor and Stuart Inns of Court. So I suppose a good place to start is what exactly are these and what can you tell us about their early history? Yeah, so the Inns of Court were where you trained to become a common lawyer in early modern England and Wales, so they're centres of legal education. Uh, so if you wanted to work as a lawyer in any of the central law courts, such as the Court of King's Bench or Queen's Bench under Elizabeth, or the Court of Common Pleas, you needed legal training, which was provided by one of the Inns of Court. Uh, You could not work as anything above an attorney without some sort of formalised training at an inn of court. And you could not become a barrister without first completing at least some of the learning exercises which they offered. Uh, They're called inns of court because they provided accommodation for lawyers and lawyer students, hence the inns, and of courts, which refers to the fact that members went on to work in the crown courts. And there are four inns in total, which are the Honourable Societies of Inner Temple, Middle Temple, Gray's Inn, and Lincoln's Inn. I don't know exactly when these inns were founded, but it's safe to assume it was sometime in the late 14th century. And the central law courts settled at Westminster in the 1340s. So it makes sense that the institutions where those working in those courts learnt their trade originate around then as well. Uh, the first mention of an inn of court as a place of legal education are in the sergeant's roles for 1388. And these were the roles which listed newly minted sergeants at law. And they named men from the Temple and Gray's Inn. And then Lincoln's Inn, who's the fourth inn of court, has surviving, surviving records from the 1420s. So it's very likely that all the inns came into being around the same time in this sort of second half of the 14th century. Okay, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about how exactly you gained a legal education at the time. So what came before the ends of court, I suppose, and what positions were available to graduates once they'd finished their studies? Yeah, so um, in early modern England, there were two main types of lawyers. There were those that practiced the common law, so-called because it was the law that was accepted throughout the realm, and those that practiced the civil law, which was named and derived from Justinian's Corpus Juris Civilis, which is a 16th, a 6th century codification of Roman law. Uh, civil law was taught at Oxford and Cambridge and the other great continental universities, and the Inns of Court taught the common law. And in fact, the Inns of Court are sometimes referred to as the third university in medieval and early modern England after Oxford and Cambridge. But their teaching style 
was a little different from traditional university education. Though there were statute books and legal treatises with which a student of the Inns of Court could get a grounding in the common law, the main way in which legal knowledge was imparted at the Inns was through learning exercises, which took place in the Inns communal meeting places. Senior members gave lectures or readings on specific statutes, picking apart the meanings of the text and citing precedents as to how these laws should be interpreted. And these readings taught students close textual analysis of great importance when you could one day be deciding a person's fate based on a particular line of text in an act. And students also learnt to debate through responding to readings and participating in things called moots, which were mock trials where they could practice what they had learned. Those that finished their training at the Inns of Court could pursue a career in the law as attorneys, solicitors or court clerks across the country. However, the upper ranks of the profession worked in Westminster in the central law courts. At the top were the judges led by a chief justice. Then came the sergeants at law who were chosen by the crown from the Inns of Court to act as size judges and fill vacancies on the judges benches when they opened up. And finally there were the apprentices at law which are more commonly called gentlemen and they pleaded in proceedings at Westminster. Uh, not all that attended the Inns of Court were there to learn the law with the aim of pursuing a legal career. The Inns were a place located just outside the City of London where one could make important connections and learn about living in an urban centre. And they could also gain a little legal know-how in order to manage a small estate somewhere in the counties. So in the early modern period, only a small percentage took up the law's profession after joining an Inn of Court. And so apart from the legal curriculum, what else did the young men actually learn there? Learning the common law was only part of what an inn of court education could offer. They also acted as a kind of finishing school for young nobles and gentlemen, teaching the skills and manners necessary to thrive in Tudor and Stuart society. An important part of the inn of court experience was dining in their great halls with the senior members of the inns, who would impart not only sage legal knowledge, but also their experiences working in the royal government, household and council. Members of the inns were informed of the songs, dances and sports taught in the royal household so that they would know how to act if they ever found themselves in those royal social circles. And presumably it wasn't all just learning. I imagine there was some sort of fun and recreation possibly. Um, Yeah, as you can imagine, groups of young men let loose in early modern London got up to all sorts um, though many kept their noses clean and stayed out of trouble, the records of the foreigns are full of students who got a little, little carried away with making merry in the city. Uh, one member of the inns, Sir William Moore, recalled that during his time at the inns in the 1530s, he not only indulged in cards and dice, but was also greatly provoked to whoredom in the city by my lewd companions. But there were more wholesome activities introduced to these men through the Inns of Court education, such as singing, dancing and fine dining and the sports that the Royal Household Walls were teaching. Uh, I think the most well-known recreational activity of the Inns were the so-called revels, which were hosted every year from October to February, where they put on plays and masks and celebrations and hold mock trials. These events were attended by the highest of Tudor and Stuart society, with Elizabeth I and James I and VI known to have attended some of these plays and masks put on by the inns. In the early 17th century, Lincoln's in the Middle Temple performed a revel's mask in celebration of the wedding of King James's daughter, Elizabeth Stuart, to Frederick V of the Platinate. But that's not to say that these revels were especially virtuous, The deeply religious Anne Bacon, who was the mother of Sir Francis Bacon, who's one of Gray's Inn's most well-known alumni, wrote many disapproving letters to her son during the revel season, condemning them as ungodly. This didn't actually stop Sir Francis, whose revels were reportedly especially raucous. In 1613, he paid £2,000 out of his own pocket to put on the mask of flowers, 
which celebrated the marriage of the Earl of Somerset to Lady Frances, daughter of the Lord Chamberlain. Though in 1613, his mother was dead, so maybe he thought it was safe to just spend as much as he wanted at that point. <laughs> Sounds like it, doesn't it? So yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned that, you know, it was a bit of a finishing school for the, the sons of the nobility, but yeah. was it just the sons of the nobility that were attending the schools or was there a way that other classes could access the inns as well? By and large, uh, the membership of the inns of court in the 15th century, at least, were formed from the nobility and gentry. And this is largely for monetary reasons. Uh, to join an inn of court, you had to pay fees, which those in the lower classes were unable to afford unless they had a wealthy patron. The non-payment of those fees does, however, give us a lot of information about the earliest inn members before the records of the inns become more comprehensive because those that failed to pay fees on time were often named in court proceedings. So we can use the plea rolls of the Court of Common Pleas, for example, to find out these early members of the inn. But by the 16th century, membership of the inns had opened up a little. So uh, you could get a wealthy patron who could pay for your inns of court education, or you could save up and put your son through the inns of court education. So some members of the yeoman class were able to afford to pay for their sons joining in the court in the 16th century. And that cost about £10 a year for six years or so. Um, it's a hefty sum, but worth it if it allowed your son to learn the ways of the gentleman, pursue a career in the law, or manage the small family estate in the counties. So I'm just thinking about royal involvement in the governing of the inns. Was there much of that? They certainly tried, but in, uh, the inns of court weren't incorporated, so they were largely self-governing. Um, that means their regulation was kept by a group of senior members of the inn. Um, so each of the inns of court actually have different names for this, uh, for these groups, even though they're essentially the same thing. So the middle and inner temples have their parliaments, um, which run the proceedings of the inn. And the governance of the inn. In Lincoln's Inn, it's known as the Council, and at Gray's Inn, this body of senior members were called pensioners. However, some pressure was brought on the inns during the reigns of Henry VIII and Mary in particular, who tried to restrict who could practice law in the Crown Courts and formalise training at the inns of court. But most royal involvement in the governing of the inns was tangential, such as when Elizabeth I decreed that the inns could no longer expand outward because space in early modern London and Middlesex was increasingly cramped. So this prompted many multi-storey projects at the inns in an attempt to expand, uh, expand upwards rather than outwards. And what about the dissolution of the monasteries and subsequent religious changes? How did that affect either the governing or, or how the education was delivered there? Yeah, well, um, as I said, Henry VIII put a bit of pressure on the inns. One of the main reasons he was able to do this was because the inns were unincorporated, they didn't own their properties outright, so they had to pay uh, rent to a property holder, a landlord. For three of the inns, they were paying rents to religious houses before the dissolution. Um, so Inner Temple, Middle Temple and Gray's Inn all paid rare rents or leased their properties from religious houses. Gray's Inn paid rent to the Carthusians at Sheen and the two temples paid uh, their rents to the hospitalers. So when these houses were dissolved, the crown became the landlord of the inns. So because they're paying money to the crown, Henry VIII has a little bit of leverage over them to try and suggest ways in which the uh, inns can be managed. This doesn't seem to have affected the management of the inns too much, but there's certainly the pressures were there after the dissolution of the monastery when the crown became their landlord. There was also pressure from the crown to conform to the new religion because this was ever changing in the 16th century as the crown switched from varying degrees of Protestantism to Catholicism and back again. There were instances of individual rebellion against the state faith within the inns. These could often be veiled critiques of the new state religion as part of the revels in plays and masks. 
in terms of business, the dissolution of monastery created a lot of legal business, but not for common law courts necessarily. Um, so the creation of courts such as the Court of Augmentations, which was created to deal with the huge amount of goods and lands of the dissolved religious houses, didn't directly affect the work of the men of the Inns of Court because the Court of Augmentations had an equitable jurisdiction. So you didn't necessarily need Inns of Court training to sit on these courts. But civil lawyers suddenly found business booming because the work of the ecclesiastical courts transferred from the papal canon lawyers to the English civil lawyers. And Dan, you mentioned before the four main inns of court. So can you remind us exactly where these were in London? And maybe just tell us a little bit about what they looked like, kind of amenities, I suppose they had. Yeah, of course. So we're lucky that all four of the inns of court still stand today and in fact still serve as professional associations of barristers for England and Wales. So we can be precise in describing their exact locations. All four inns of court are located in the Holborn area of London. And the most likely reason for this is because on 2nd of December 1234, Henry III decreed that nobody providing legal education should be located in the city of London. So the legal profession moved to the boundary of the city, which was closest to Westminster and its courts, which was the Holborn area. And this area has remained a hub of legal education ever since. So even though the Inns of Court weren't around as places of legal education in the 13th century, the fact that the places where people were being taught the law moved to these outskirts seems like the most likely reason why the Inns of Court built up around there. Gray's Inn is the northernmost inn, uh, which is at the north end of Chancery Lane. In the Tudor period, it's one of the most attractive inns for prospective students because to the north lay open fields. It was also the furthest away from the River Thames, so it didn't suffer as much from the smells that came off the river in the height of summer. Inner and Middle Temple are located south of Gray's Inn at the south end of Chancery Lane, pretty much directly on the north bank of the Thames. And Lincoln's Inn lies to the west of the two, so there's an entrance about halfway down Chancery Lane. In terms of what the inns all contained, all four inns have a chapel and a hall, and the hall served as a large communal space where they could have their dinners, put on plays, masks, and do readings as part of legal education. Again, in spite of the many changes London has undergone in the centuries since, the foundations of these chapels and halls are largely original. Those centuries of fires and bombings at the inns mean they have been rebuilt and refurbished several times over the years. They also all had and have large green spaces which survive to this day. Grey's Inn walks were developed by Sir Francis Bacon as a place where London society could promenade. The fact that he had a prominent view of the walks from his chambers also possibly affected his decision to develop the area and build up the area as a, as a nice place to walk and to think. Inner Temple similarly has its garden south of its main hall and Lincoln's Inn Fields lie to the west of the main inn where they still remain today. During the Tudor and Stuart periods, these are places where students and members actually resided. So they were well kept in spite of their proximity to the built up city of London. By the 16th century, they hired porters to keep the inhabitants of the inn safe and secure and keep the peace. And they could also limit who could enter the inn after dark. And they weren't just obviously places of legal education. I know they played a role in developing English literary culture. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, the inns were incredibly important to the development of the English theatre. Uh, the revels that members of the inn put on every year were not just some student-led productions of old plays, but included productions from some of the greatest playwrights of the age. And they performed for nobility and royalty and could be an excellent opportunity to secure new patrons. 
the inn halls provided a large communal space outside of the theatres where new productions could be performed and trialled. And many of these were written specifically for a legal audience, which kind of explains why so many legal scenes happen in early modern plays. Um, one of the sort of most well-known uh, patrons or associates of these playwrights is Henry Risley, who was the third Earl of Southampton, and Shakespeare dedicated a couple of his narrative poems to Henry. Uh, Henry was a member of Gray's Inn, and Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors was performed in front of Southampton and other potential patrons at the Gray's Inn Revels in December 1594, part of a particularly rowdy revel season, with many events cancelled or postponed because of unruly audiences. So the Inns of Court were very much these centres of, sort of English Renaissance theatre where plays could be put on, where patrons came from and where these new plays could be trialled. And some of our listeners may have heard of the Inns of Chancery. I know that's popped up a few times in, in different things that I've been reading. So can you tell us what the relationship was between the Inns of Court and the Inns of Chancery as well? Yeah, of course. So the Inns of Chancery were lesser inns associated with the Inns of Court. And we get most of our early information about these inns from the 15th century lawyer, Sir John Fortescue, who wrote his De Laudibus Legum Angliae during his exile in the 1460s. And according to him, the inns of chancery, or Hospicia Minora, the lesser inns, as he called them, were where young men started their common law legal education to learn the basic elements of the law before entering an inn of court, which Fortescue referred to as Hospicia Majora Majora the greater inns, and that this is where they would study the common law in more detail at the inns of court. Though there wasn't really a fixed course of legal education within the inns, typically one started at Oxford or Cambridge to gain a basic knowledge in civil law before matriculating to an inn of chancery to learn the basics of the common law, after which you joined an inn of court to complete your education. So this could take over a decade, and it was typical for an average student in an inn of court to be in attendance for around six years. So this education could take a, a good 10 years. Though the origin of the name Inns of Chancery is uncertain, it's probably that they were named for the skills that they taught. So one of the chief roles of the Chancery Clerk was the production of the original writs, something students of the Inns of Chancery were expected to learn and understand before matriculating to an Inn of Court. Now, each of these Inns of Chancery were attached to a specific Inn of Court, so, for example, Staple and Barnard Inns, which are two Inns of Chancery, were associated with Gray's Inn. And we've got letters and reports from members of Gray's Inn who recommend who should be running the Inns of Chancery. But by the 17th century, the Inns of Chancery and the Inns of Court are starting to split a little. So it's no longer the Inns of Chancery where you go before you move to an Inn of Court. The Inn of Chancery had become a centre for the training of the solicitor class of the legal profession. Uh, so those, those are the lawyers that acted as attorneys and dealt with the public as opposed to the barrister class, which are taught the inner courts, which became judges. So with the later creation of the Law Society, which provided similar training for solicitors, the Inns of Chancery fell into disuse, and the sites and buildings were mostly sold off in the 19th century, by which point they had become little more than gentlemen's clubs. So in the 16th century, they were a little bit like sort of feeder schools, were they, to the Inns of Court, I suppose? Yeah, so you'd go to Oxford and Cambridge, have, get a basic learning in the law, generally, and then you go to an inn of chancery to sort of learn the, the very basics of the common law and how that works in practice, pr producing writs. And then you'd go to the inn of court where you'd learn more complex common law uh, education. And roughly what age were they when they started their education or when they came to the inns of court? Around about 15, 16 was pretty typical. But you, they certainly wouldn't leave the inns of court until their late 20s usually. 
Now, you've mentioned a couple of prominent Tudor members of the inns. Can you talk, tell us a little bit more and just mention a, a couple of others, perhaps? Uh, so by the 16th century, an inn of court education was a requirement to reach the highest ranks of the common law legal profession. So all of the chief justices of the King's Bench and Common Pleas were inns of court men. But admittedly, they aren't really well known outside of the legal profession. So the likes of Sir John Phoenix and Sir John Ernley are probably not well known to most of you. Although I love their work. It's great. Um, but <laughs> the Inns of Court do boast some prominent Tudor alumni. Uh, so Richard Empson, who was uh, one of Henry VII's royal ministers and famously executed as a scapegoat on the accession of Henry VIII, was trained at the Inns of Court. And one of the reasons that there was sort of this anti-lawyer sentiment at the end of Henry VII's reign was because of people like Empson, who they thought were using the law to take money off of people. Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's first minister, was also a member of Gray's Inn, though he seems to have joined later in his career. And this is perhaps an attempt to gain greater royal control of the inns during the break with Rome. Thomas Wolsey was famously not a member of any of the inns of court, though no doubt it was something that he would have wanted. He certainly had aspirations as a lawyer, though acted primarily in the equity courts, which did not require formal inns of court training. In Elizabeth's reign, two of the most prominent inns of court men were Sir Nicholas Bacon, who was Lord Keeper of the Great Seal and father of Sir Francis Bacon, and his brother-in-law, who was William Cecil, Lord Burley, who was Elizabeth's principal secretary for much of her reign. Both of these men were members of Gray's Inn, and Bacon even became treasurer of the inn. And their close connection to Elizabeth I is the main reason that Gray's Inn flourished in this period. It was the largest inn in terms of membership for much of the 16th and early 17th centuries. And even when these men gained power in uh, politics, they kept close connections with the inn. And there are several letters addressed to Burley from members of the inn, usually when they want to talk about the governance of the inn or the governance of Barnard's Inn. And now you mentioned that most of the, you know, the, all the four main inns actually survive, which is quite incredible. And I remember when yeah. I did went to London, I actually did a tour of all the inns and it's fantastic. You can walk around and, and see everything. So which inn is your favourite to visit? So I don't know about a favourite, but we are lucky that all four of the, inn, the English inns of court survive to this day. And their close proximity to each other means that you can visit all of them in the space of, the afternoon, of an afternoon. This may sound like a bit of a cop-out, so I don't have to pick a favourite, and it absolutely is. Um, the one I've visited the most often is Grey's Inn because I used to work there. It is such an interesting area, I think, isn't it? There's just so much to see when you do those tours and walk around and hear all the all the stories. It really is, and the fact that you can go to Grey's Inn walks and, go, and be told this is exactly where Francis Bacon built up the area and where he would have walked around and come up with so many of his ideas is the fact that all of these spaces still exist to this day. It really sort of transports you back to that period. You can imagine what it was like to learn at these inns, to walk around these inns. Yeah, it's been a, a number of years since I was there, but I sort of remember, I don't know which one, maybe it was several of them. You know, you kind of turn off a busy London street and suddenly you're in quite a, a nice green space and quite a peaceful, peaceful area. Yeah, because they were, they're all walled now and all have mm. their own gates. You suddenly, you sort of get off at Chancery Lane Station take a right turn and suddenly you're in this lovely quiet space yeah it's really beautiful I do recommend a tour when we're out and about again um, yeah <laughs> so Dan the last thing I wanted to ask you of course is our Tudor takeaway so something for our listeners to go and have a look at after the show or to listen to or to watch what is your Tudor takeaway well I think um and it's a bit it's a bit of self-promotion 
But in the last year, I think the work of the National Archives and the archive sector overall at getting catalogue descriptions and records available online has been absolutely fantastic to see. One of the projects which I was most excited about were the records of the Court of Augmentations, which are in E321. Um, have recently their catalogue descriptions have been put onto Discovery, the National Archives online catalogue. So now if you've got an interest in dissolved monasteries and the legal records relating to that, you can actually search for those monasteries, those places, those people on the online catalogue. So I think that's my takeaway that in the last year, in spite of everything, we're starting to see improved catalogue descriptions on several online catalogues, which means that when we're able to get back to archives, it should be a lot easier to discover these original records and learn more about the Tudor period, which is fantastic. Absolutely. I get very excited when there are new digitised things, especially, (laughs) you know, living in Sydney, not being able to to get over there. I was meant to be over there last year. And so they're so, so useful, aren't they, to researchers Mm -hmm. and writers just all around the world. So it's fantastic. I think everyone's got very good at searching online. (laughs) Yeah, we're all Google experts now, aren't we? That's for sure. The minute I'm allowed on an aeroplane, Dan, I'll be over there, hopefully, so I can get to see (laughs) finally the Amberlynn legal documents that I've been waiting for for (laughs) quite some time. But thank you so much for coming back on the show. I know you've got lots on at your home. And yeah, so I'm really, really um, grateful that you came to talk to us a little bit about something I guess we don't hear too much about generally. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.